Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth, and I want to remind you to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ L O U I E X I V on both Twitter and Instagram. We have merch available in our shop at poppantheonpod.com, our new children's dad hat, or your Mirror Superstar T-shirt. And also, don't forget that we are assessing all the comments on Apple Podcasts in the month of February, and our favorite comment is going to get read on air, and we will send you a free Niche Legend Dad Hat, so get on that. Don't forget to do that. Lastly, Pop Pantheon All Access, our Patreon channel, we just posted a new episode, a game that Russ and I love to play called Step Up, Step Down, where we talk about recent events and pop stars' careers and whether they constitute a step up or a step down in their Pantheon ranking. This week, we're talking about SZA, we're talking about Kim Petras, we're talking about Rihanna and we're talking about Miley Cyrus, and it was such a fun episode. And as a little bonus, I'm going to include a little segment of that episode at the end of this one. So when you get to the end of the episode after the music plays, stay tuned for a little segment of this week's Patreon episode, Step Up, Step Down. And if you enjoy what you hear, you can go to patreon.com slash poppantheon and sign up, or I will include the link in the show notes, and you can click there, sign up at the icon tier for all of our bonus content, access to our Discord, and so much more. All right, so this is another B-side episode of the show. I brought on my friend Dan Runcie, who hosts the Trapital podcast and sends out the Trapital newsletter. He's a music biz whiz, more or less. And one thing that comes up on the show so much, obviously, is streaming. The state of streaming, the way that streaming has impacted the way that our favorite pop stars release music. Even the ways that they make music, the way that it has restructured the sheer nature of pop stardom across the board, how pop stars operate, how big they can get, the sort of siloing of artists into cult phenomenons as opposed to monocultural forces. And I thought I'd bring Dan on to just dig into some of that stuff. The way that streaming and the complete stranglehold that streaming has on our music consumption has changed the nature of pop stardom, has changed the nature of pop music, and has changed the way that we pop fans consume and interface with our music by our favorite stars. So Dan is so smart, and this was such a fun conversation to have. I hope you enjoy it. So here is my conversation with Dan Runcie. Okay, I'm here with the founder of Trapital. It's Dan Runcie. Dan, welcome to the show. Louie, it's an honor to be here. Big fan. Thanks for having me. The feeling is mutual. I got to be on your show just last week, although it just came out today when we're recording, which will have be last week. Everything gets confusing in podcast land, but whatever. I got to be on your show to talk about Rihanna and the Super Bowl with you, which was really fun. So anyone who hasn't listened to that, whether the Super Bowl has happened or not, which I guess it already will have happened at this point. It was still really fun to get to talk to you about what the business of Rihanna is at the current juncture. We're here to talk about a kind of broad topic, but I think something that really deserves to be borne out on our show. Obviously, Pop Pantheon revolves around the world of pop stardom, trying to taxonomize that universe. And you're a music business expert. And one thing that has had the most profound impact, I think, not just on the sort of business side of music, but also I think through the ways it's filtered down through everything has impacted the art of making pop music and the ways that people act as pop stars and how their careers unfold is streaming. So we're here to talk about that today. I guess my first question for you is just like, 
really broadly, and like I know this is like a huge topic to sort of start out on. Can you like lay out the history of streaming? Give us the broad overview of like how this form of music consumption became the central way in which we all listen to recorded music at this point. Definitely. So if you go back, let's go back to the days of Napster and the CD era was booming at the moment and here comes this disruptive technology and everyone is downloading illegal music. A lot of people are getting viruses on their computer as a result and everything is just being frustrated in that way. Then iTunes comes along, you can buy these songs and you can buy them for a dollar, a little more, and that's a little bit better, but still, it isn't the most convenient model. And at that point, that's when streaming becomes an option where people say, okay, what if you give people the access to the music? They don't actually own the song outright, but there's some set fee or there's some advertising-based revenue that they can have that they can get as a result of it. You saw a few of these early things. I remember Pandora had its big moment where everyone was on Pandora and it was like, oh, wow, what is this? This is amazing. And Spotify's actually been in the game for a while and they were mostly started off in Europe up where they're gaining traction there, but they really didn't come over into the US until the 2010s. And at that point, it was still fascinating because Apple and iTunes was still seen as the dominant place where it was going. And you even think about someone like Steve Jobs, he hated the concept of streaming. He thought that Mm. we were never going to go that way. So now we're in this place where this is the answer. And it's the answer because Spotify essentially put a business model that consumers wanted. They wanted to pay as much much as they were buying for a CD, maybe even less on a monthly basis, and they would get access to everything. And it's something that has obviously continued to frustrate a lot of the rights holders, whether it's record labels and others, but consumers really enjoyed it. And we can get into all of the ramifications of how that's impacted things, (laughs) but it's become this place where even though other forms of medium, there's exclusive deals, there's other things in music, whether it's Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, or Tidal, you are getting a library access to the all of the songs that you could honestly imagine having. And it's also made it a lot easier for newer artists and artists from other areas across the world to get their voices heard. So there's a lot of pros, but there's been a lot of drawbacks as well for some areas, especially for rights holders. But like anything, we see these things shift from time to time time. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like hard to really even like convey to people that didn't grow up with the pre-streaming world of music consumption, like how radically this has like altered the way that we listen to music. And I'm just thinking back about the, the, the idea of record collecting and like how important that was to me growing up and like what a big deal it was to have to like decide what I was going to buy, decide what I was going to hear. You know, we had such a more difficult or like high bar our point of entry to like all music for like most of music history. It was like either you were going to like hear songs on the radio or you were going to make like a serious financial investment into like a single album. And the music industry, obviously, like in the pre streaming era, churned on the idea that you could charge people a significant amount of money to purchase like a single album because there really was no other option. Like I was just thinking back when I was thinking about prepping for this episode about the idea that like if I was interested in a single by an artist that I was interested in, like Britney or whoever when I was a kid, I was probably just going to go
go out and buy that album just to have access to like the two or three singles that I wanted to hear on the album. And I was probably going to sink, you know, 15 bucks or whatever into being able to listen to Hit Me Baby One More Time at Will or whatever. So it's so fascinating to think about the idea that now at my fingertips is every single thing I want for less money than that, which like on its face seems amazing and like feels incredible. But I also can notice in my personal life, like the way that that's affected my consumption habits and the way that it's like, I think weirdly in some ways lessened my investment, especially like in new music, because I can passively like consume so much of it, but like don't feel any need to like actively engage with it because I don't don't have that investment. I haven't given that, that thought. I haven't like, m- like taken my wallet out for it in a specific way. So it's affected my listening consumption habits. And then of course, as we're going to get into, it's affected so much. I feel like the way that artists think about how they make music. I mean, for most of you know our cognizant lives, artists churned on the idea of making albums like that felt worth buying or that felt valuable in a specific way because that was how they're going to make their money by like making an album that had like seven hits songs on it and whatever and I can't wait to get into all the ways that that's affected the way that these pop stars are operating in terms of how they think of their work but I just wanted to point out that I I don't think you can undersell the way that this has affected both the consumer and the artist oh 100% big and small right it's crazy because I think we're around the same age and I remember going back whether it's my parents going to go buy me some music or me saving to buy it myself if you buy two albums you go to Sam Goody or Tower Records you could be spending 50 bucks Easily. Right. And Easy. To your point, the record labels also knew that there was probably only going to be a few songs on those albums that we wanted. So while there right. were always a few masterpieces that stand out from the time, there were a lot of filler tracks that a yeah. lot of those CDs had that we were just forced mm-hmm. to buy and go through anyway. Now it's completely flipped everything because the artists and the record labels are no longer making money solely off of that one-time purchase. Whether we listen to No Doubt Return of Saturn once or a million times, it didn't make a difference. Now it does. It changed everything Mm. with that. So it's also changing how people get compensated too, because even if you had that one hit song on an album and someone was buying it in the CD era, everyone that was a songwriter or was on one of those tracks was splitting that evenly. Now in streaming, if the person who has the hit song, they're getting most of that revenue. So that's changed a lot of the dynamic too. Mm, That's interesting. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, obviously so much has been made from the fact that like artists for the most part really don't make a lot of money off of streaming. And I feel like that's a really key factor in understanding how this ecosystem has been altered here. Can you talk about like what the varying tiers of artists, like based on their success, like how much money are they walking away from, from people streaming their albums or catalogs. Yeah, so the biggest artists in the world, like your Drakes and your Taylor Swifts, they're probably getting, I'd say, low eight figures from streaming per year. And that may not seem like a lot. And we need to look back to see, okay, how does that compare to let's say Whitney Houston in 1992 or like one of those top 90s. I don't know the numbers exactly, but I do think that the top artists are still making more. But I think the difference we're seeing now is that even if you try to figure out the math on what it pays per stream, it matters even more. What do these record label contracts look like? Because an artist like Drake or Taylor Swift, 
they're likely earning more from the music that they've released more recently now that they have favorable terms as opposed to some of their back catalog stuff. I know that's especially true for Drake, some of his older stuff. He was signed to record labels, but someone like Taylor, essentially now she's not getting much from the stuff that Scooter Braun or Shamrock owns, but all the Taylor's right. versions, she's getting you know much more of that. So it's shifted things in that way. I also think the interesting thing, too, is that with artists themselves, they've also started to tweak how they've released music in the streaming era. Mm -hmm. One of the things that sticks out to me is how in the, I want to say 80s and 90s specifically, artists would have much longer buildups or intros leading into a song, right? Remember that meme with that smooth song, Rob Thomas and Santana, where they just had that long intro going in and that became Mm -hmm. a whole meme? That wouldn't happen now with a song that's as big as that. Like, you look at how Ariana Grande or Dua Lipa, like, the second the song starts, like, the lyrics are mostly coming out within a few seconds. Oh, that's intentional because people can easily click to something else, right? Right. They're not forced to just, okay, I bought this CD. This is what I'm going to have for the next couple of weeks before I go. No, if the song doesn't have your attention, you're going to go to another one. And even smaller things too, like shorter song titles, shorter album titles. What's the quickest thing to say? Hey, Alexa, can you play this song? Right? Right, 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 It's it's so much longer to have some of these long, elaborate titles. So we're starting to see more of those things happen. So it's really fascinating. And just to go back to the other point you mentioned on how artists at different stages making money, I do think that it is quite top heavy because even though Drake and Taylor or others can now make $10 million from streams, it doesn't take too long till you get to artists that aren't making millions at all. And streaming is essentially for them an opportunity to just get more promotion and word out there so they can make the real money on tour or anything else that they have if they're selling merch or other items or if they have businesses behind them like some of these artists do. So you're starting to see more of that happen now. And that's also a complete flip because in the 90s and before that, artists used to tour in order to promote the album, to get you to buy more of it. Now it's completely flipped. Everyone is trying to do whatever they can to get you to buy their tour tickets. So like if a superstar like a Drake or a Taylor is making, as you said, like eight figures. So what we can assume like they're walking away with like 10 or $20 million a year based on streaming their catalogs, basically. I think 10, I think 10 is a safer number. Yeah. 10, 10. Like how much, like if you had to guess, would a blockbuster in a previous era, like the bodyguard soundtrack or, you know, like rhythm nation, 1814 or bad or whatever, like how much money would like Janet or Whitney or Michael be walking away from in those peak eras? Do you think like if you had to guess? Okay. Yeah. No, this is interesting. Let's do some ballpark rough estimation. So at least with the, with the Drake and Taylor situation the 10 million is probably what their catalog roughly generated i would say so yeah so let's say that their take-home pay is still high seven figures so let's say it's like you know maybe eight nine or so in the bodyguard era let's say the bodyguard sold 30 million copies i think something like that may sound right i forget exactly so you figure yeah twenty dollars each for those the artists took home about like 25 percent of that so let's say i mean could Whitney have made 
$150 million from the bodyguard, like all throughout herself, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised. Yeah. You know what I mean? Especially yeah. when you add the movie and something like that too. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just want to lay that out for people because I think in terms of the shifting incentives here and like the way that this is reoriented, as you said, like the flip between the primary driving force being like, how do we get people to buy albums to the primary driving force being, how do we get people to buy concert tickets is really worth illustrating like that shifting financial game because like if drake is making nine million dollars off of his entire you know 10 to 12 project catalog that's been around for the last 12 years and whitney houston could make 100 or 150 million dollars off of one record i think that really helps people understand at the superstar echelon like the way this stuff is working and i'm curious also i mean we talked a little bit about or you were insinuating earlier that like yeah albums in the past there was this version of it or a way to think about it where it was like oh record labels knew you had to buy this whole album to get access to the two or three songs you liked but you were insinuating like the length of songs being shifted but i also think about like the length of like album campaigns and how that's shifted so much at the superstar level like as a result of this like you think about all of those big albums i mean the bodyguard being a great example all the other albums i brought up being great examples of like albums going on these like three-year campaigns like pop stars drop the album and like they're trying to work like seven singles from these records or five seven singles how has that changed in the streaming ecosystem like how is the incentive in terms of like the pace at which artists release music or the way they think about you know stacking records with you know hit songs like how do you see that as having shifted as a result of streaming oh great question so you think back and your point is exactly when you have a one-time purchase like a cd you're trying to push everything to maximize the occasional greatness of that happening so you want to have this build-up where it was not uncommon for artists to have two lead singles and music videos ahead of the album coming out then maybe the third music video comes out when the album actually comes out you're building momentum and then you continue that for year on out and you even saw this in the 2000s even when the cd ever started to take a hit you even look at someone like 50 cent there were build up from before with the mixtapes and into club coming out well before that album ever Mm -hmm. came out and now it's completely different you started to see the shift when beyonce did her surprise album drop in 2013 and ever since then everyone has done something like that to some extent taylor swift we've seen her do it a few different ways but the most famous ones were folklore and evermore boom here it is i'm gonna put this out tomorrow And we don't even bat an eye. It's so common because now there's less incentive to maximize that. You're trying to maximize people to come back to revisit this thing time and time again. And the best way Mm. to do that is to reinforce habit. They're not interacting directly with you through a store. They're doing it based on the service that they subscribe to, whether it's Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. What are the things you can do to get them to come back to you and come back to your catalog? It's releasing music more frequently or finding ways to release that music or getting featured in playlists or other things that are putting you front and center as often as possible. So that's why I think people like Drake and Taylor are perfect examples because they are people that became famous before streaming really took off the way that it is. And you can see how they've adapted things since then. I think in the first five years of Taylor Swift or the first five albums that Taylor Swift put out, there was maybe like a 
I want to say almost like a 10 year span if you go from like 06 maybe even like 07 of like when those albums came out but since then since Lover all the way up to Midnight's all those albums have came out within the past four years even less so at this point so it's fascinating how much of that has shifted but yeah it's the platform has shifted you're trying to maximize the attention on that and how do you repeat and get introduced to the audience again it's almost in some ways like sending an email newsletter or sending a podcast Mm. like you and I do. Each episode doesn't just bring people to that new one. It reintroduces people to be like, oh yeah, he did that one a couple of months ago. Let me go check that one out about, right? Like Pop Pantheon is back in the feed. It's back up top. Let me go see everything else. Tell me what you think about this. And this is something I've been kind of chewing on. You know, I'm, you know, my concern is constantly how do I assess pop stars success, right? Like I'm always trying to like figure out how we're supposed to be doing that. What is their, how do we assess their impact? And, you know, through a lot of the eras that we deal with on the show prior to streaming, there's kind of like standard issue ways to do that, right? Like we look at like how many albums they sell and like how many hit songs do they have? Like, you know, there's ways that feel kind of tangible that I can figure that out. You know, one thing that feels kind of pertinent to what we're talking about right now, and I'm curious how you think about this, is kind of like what I kind of clock, at least like on a major pop star level, as like a de-emphasis on hit singles. So if hit singles used to be like the currency of sort of like driving albums through these multi-year cycles, right? Because you, as we have laid out before, like that's what you were doing. You're trying to sell this one $15, $20 product, you know, over the course of a couple of years. You know, now that that's not really what's going on anymore, like I think Beyonce's self-titled album being a great example of this, I feel like at the superstar level, like once you're at the established superstar level, it's become less about trying to find traditional hit songs or trying to pick them out in advance. For instance, like I think about Beyonce's album as seminal in this way because there were no advanced singles. And in a way, people got to kind of like pick and choose what they liked and sort of like, you know, choose the hit that they want from that album. I think Drake's done this a number of times too, where it's like the albums come out and like the singles, at least after the first one or whatever, kind of like bubble up organically based on like what people show interest in after already having heard them. And also, I feel like the streaming ecosystem has diversified or created such a breadth of what we can listen to that like pop stardom has become less about the currency of hit songs and more about world building and like a cult of personality that you can kind of just like continue to reinforce between like you and your extremely large cult fan base or something like that so like I think about like a Billie Eilish for instance being a good example of an artist who yes has she had a handful of like traditional hit songs yes like bad guy went to number one whatever but like Billie Eilish Eilish's pop stardom, even though she's like an A-list top tier pop star, feels like it has very little to do with having like a a run of hit singles in the same way that like Lady Gaga's career did or Beyonce's early career did or Michael Jackson's career did or Madonna's career did. Like, I wonder if that makes sense to you or like how you interface with that idea of like what the role the streaming ecosystem has played in the role of kind of like the search for hit singles or the sort of hit parade that pop stardom used to churn on. Yeah, I think the big shift that's happened is before streaming, even looking back to Beyonce or Lady Gaga, there was an aspect of they needed to have monoculture exposure and fandom levels to in order to have that, right? Just Dance needed to break through to everyone to the point where you could talk to your mom and be like, oh yeah, oh, I heard that song on the radio, right? Like it needed to hit those levels. Now, some of this world building and even some of this character building is a bit more about, okay, I have this audience because the barriers are now lower than they were 
for people to both reach me and for me to reach everyone in the world. And it's harder to have that, say, monoculture reach that I did. So what can I do to cultivate the people that are with me and the people that are here? So it's in a lot of ways, like you mentioned, how can you build a character, build a world that's around this concept of the album? And then people can, at that point, whether it's your fans or others, can be like, okay, this is the one we rock with. This is the one we don't. I look at Tyler, the creator, who he did this a few times when that Igor album came out. He had that wig. He was wearing it everywhere and that was pretty consistent through and then the fans pretty much picked okay i think he put it out as well but he knew that okay earthquake is going to be the song from this one and then i think he did something similar where call me if you get lost he was this explorer going around the world and that was consistently through and i know we've seen some of that to the extent with artists in the past but i feel like it was almost more focused on a particular video where i felt like in the mtv right. era yeah there were specific videos you would see where they took a particular theme but the album itself didn't necessarily have that maybe Maybe there's some unique cases. I guess InSync maybe had that to some extent with like the whole no strings attached like stuff in the right. music video. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I feel like we probably see a bit more of this now and it's because you can't break through and try to pass the whole mom test thing. How do you create a world, find your people? And I do think, as you mentioned, Billie Eilish is a good example of this because even with the most recent album, like Happier Ever After, I know that was, I know that was a big song, but that still wasn't as big as Bad Guy. But I know for her, no. it was like, okay, the hair is no longer going to be green for this one. I'm going to do this. Right. I'm going to do that. Like there's a whole vibe yeah. shift. I wonder if you feel like, because this is something I've been sort of thinking about is like, does this world building aspect aspect that's been fostered by the streaming ecosystem because of the way it fosters like a cult sense around even major pop stars and you were just talking about like monoculture has dissolved to the point where it's not possible to be a Michael Jackson really in the state of the way things are right now even the biggest pop stars in the new generation and much hay has been made lately about the sort of like where are the new pop stars where are the new pop stars and I think that part of the answer to that question is that we don't have like pop stardom isn't the same as it used to be it's like Doja Cat can come through and feel like she's having this big year and yet it still feels kind of niche in a weird way like it still doesn't feel like as you said like every single person knows every single Doja Cat song in the same way that as you mentioned even 10 or 11 years ago everyone knew Just Dance everyone knew Poker Phrase everyone knew Bad Romance like from grandmas in the supermarket to like the smallest children and like that's just not the way that this stuff is really disseminating anymore but I wonder if you feel like that has incentivized pop stars to go for something of like higher artistic integrity versus kind of like loading albums with gambits or plays towards those things and whether that potentially is like a kind of nice side effect of the way that streaming has affected pop stardom and you know I think again Beyonce is another great example of this throughout all of her 2010s releases but I think that that's been true of Taylor too like you think about an ever more in a folklore and you think like okay these can be really huge albums for this star that also feel kind of like artistic larks. You know what I mean? Like in a way that like, I can't imagine the equivalent of Taylor Swift, like in the way that like, you know, erotica might have like been something like that for Madonna, but instead of seeming like a lark that was still really a, cultural phenomenon or successful or somewhere that had somewhere to go instead registers as like a flop because it doesn't have traditional hit singles on it or something like that. Yeah, I think that's right because we've seen so many times where pop stars can fall into the trap of that sophomore slump album. And that sophomore slump album is they're trying to do everything. They're trying to check the boxes and they feel like, okay, I broke through. Now I feel the pressure to try to keep this maintained. And maybe the side effect now is that they don't necessarily need to try to do that in the same way. And hopefully they don't because 
I think that we've seen plenty of times where it's oftentimes the stuff you do where you go back to what you're known for, what people love. Now that you have the bigger platform, more people will love that even more. So how could you reach and still tap into what makes you authentic without trying overtly to try to be that catch-all person? So Exactly. Yeah. So I think that that's been a good side effect. I do want to see more of it. But I do think about the other side of this too, because you brought up the broader question of just what's happening to the pop stars now. And this is something that I know artists themselves are thinking about. I know the record labels are thinking about it. And you hear little pieces where they'll say that they're less dependent on superstars. But I think that even that has some nuance to it, because if a superstar walked in the door, they would all try to, you know, have a bidding war to try to get them. But so if I think about like 2014, 2016, if we're streaming really started to take off and be where it is today. And who of those acts that came out is going to be the next one that's going to be like, I am doing a nationwide, worldwide tour in football stadiums, the way that Beyonce and Taylor do. And we've still yet to see that happen to that level. Maybe you've seen one-off shows here or there, but you haven't seen it. Maybe the closest person is maybe someone like Dua Lipa, who I think has done really well from breaking out in, I guess, what was that, 2016, 2017, when like new rules came out. And maybe Billie Eilish could eventually get there, but we still haven't seen that yet. And of course, it takes time. It can even take decades to get to that point. But I'm eager to see what that's going to look like, because even some of these newer artists like Olivia Rodrigo, there's still so much ahead. We just don't know how this is going to play out. Yeah, there is a dearth uh, because of this monocultural dissolve that is 100% part and parcel with the streaming ecosystem there aren't these consuming pop stars in the same way like everything feels niche like i feel like more stars than ever can tour arenas but are we ever going to see one in a stadium again is like a really interesting question to kind of mull over here i mean the one that comes to my mind honestly from that era that feels like one of the last iterations of that old version of pop stardom is actually ariana you know she is emerges in 2013 so she's cuspy in this particular way but she feels like one of the last of that like old breed of sort of like big tent pop stars but i agree Dua's is another good example who and do is interesting in what we're talking about here because unlike a lot of the way that i think a lot of these stars work the streaming ecosystem which is to like flood the marketplace release things very often often onto the next thing you're not looking at projects that are like trying to toss off five number one hit singles like that just doesn't really happen like look i'm even thinking about adele who's not a flutter of the marketplace obviously she disappears forever but like you know she releases this record there's really only one single. I mean, I get right. that there's technically more, but like there's only one single that's really like been worked in any sort of meaningful way. The the churn of this entire thing just creates a situation where there's no way for one thing or one artist or one album or anything to just like dominate the situation in this way that like used to be the defining aspect of what pop stardom felt like. I know, right? The, the other thing that's tough with this too is what is it going to look like from a global perspective? Because now that streaming has started to grow and have more influence, the biggest thing that we've seen in the past few years is artists in their own local languages dominating and rising right in those right. areas so yeah. it's not like it was even seven ten years ago where the biggest star across the world whether it was japan or latin america or other places could have been taylor swift going there that's no longer right. the case they have their own right. artist and right. taylor swift may not even be in the top five for some of those areas so mm. when that's the case How does that shift things? Because I think so many of these things, whether you're thinking about the broader economics of making money back on touring, making money back on streaming and all those things, 
the world, even though it's bigger, it almost becomes a bit smaller in that way for some of these Western Anglo artists that were right. used to having global domination for so long because the right. marketplace had more barriers than it does now. It's interesting also, the next thing I want to kind of ask you about is kind of related to this democratization idea, like the idea of the way that like streaming has, you know, democratized pop stardom in the ways that you're talking about, where it's like not just like one epicenter of pop music is sort of like dominating what disseminates into the rest of the world. I also wonder kind of like if you could lay out for people, I'm curious about this on numerous levels, but like, okay, we talked a little bit about the fact that like now major artists like to sort of market test singles, like they release their albums, they don't tell you what the next single is going to be because they kind of wait to see like what everyone's into. And I think one of the things that people like to say about the streaming ecosystem as a giant positive is that music discovery is easier. So random shit, thanks to both streaming and social media, has a chance to like break through and get really big really fast from the ground up. You don't need radio programmers to approve it. You don't need gatekeepers to approve it. Like there is this feeling of egalitarianism that has been fostered in this ecosystem. How accurate is that as an idea in reality? Like, is that as true seeming as it is? And are there drawbacks in any of that sort of concept in your mind? Yeah, I would say yes and no. I think it's more relatively egalitarian than it was before, because before the gatekeepers controlled everything and the gatekeepers were the major record labels. Now you have more of it creeping in. And what's happening is that what's really at the surface of this or maybe underneath is the power dynamics between the record labels and the streaming services. And even though the record labels, many of them do have stakes in Spotify, so there should be some shared interest there. It doesn't play out that way because the record labels want to maximize their catalogs and all of their rights. But Spotify and all the streaming services want to try to maximize theirs. And they've always been in this tug of war ever since Spotify started to grow over how much percentage the labels should get of the revenue that comes into Spotify, how that payment gets divided between who and how the artists get paid. And all of that has went back and forth. So even though now the share of music from independent artists has continued to grow. Even things that you hear like a hundred songs being uploaded today for Spotify, that's something that that the record labels often dismiss because it's something that comes from Spotify and they're the ones that want to be able to push that because it shows that they have more power in the landscape and that it's not Mm. just the record labels. The thing is though, that number is a bit inflated. I think it is tens of thousands. It actually isn't a hundred thousand because it includes podcasts. It includes other types of things. It's tracks. It's not necessarily songs. Songs, but I think we've seen the power dynamic play out in a few ways because with artists now, playlisting and the algorithm are one of the biggest ways that they can get their music played in front of people. Right. But right. there's been a lot of talks back and forth about whether the record labels have some floor in terms of if a song gets recommended by an algorithm, how many of those songs should be record label songs versus right. independent songs. So that's right. a whole thing. And that's never really been made public, but I have a feeling that that's there as well. I'm and sure. we've seen that shift too, because in the earlier days of streaming, let's say 2015, 16, 17, the editorial playlists had so much power at the time, whether it was Rap Caviar 
Star or some of the other ones that we had seen on the various services. So those were still people that were editorials that almost had the same role of a radio station's program director that could really pull the strings and say what was there. And with that, I think that there was still a lot of influence and there's a bit more buy-in and shaking hands that those folks could mm-hmm. have with record mm-hmm. labels based on past relationships. I think on Rap Caviar at the time, there's only 50 songs they could pick. So there was some right. of that there. But the way that Spotify has shifted things now, the algorithms just do a better job of being able to share with people what they want to hear. So, I mean, I subscribe to Spotify so I can see in the mixes, a lot of it is the stuff that I've already been listening to. And they oh, for know that. Sure. And they just give you that over and over. So when you think about that too, that makes it even harder for new artists to break through or for independent artists to break through, especially if there's some floor that exists between how much new music can come through, especially if it is from a new artist. It's easier than it was mm. before, but there are still some you know invisible ceilings that are there that make it tough to break through, at least to a certain level. It seems easier in some ways, but I also think it's fostered a situation where it's like, there's so many more artists now there that like, you probably have a lower percentage of artists that are actually breaking through when you actually like look at the marketplace just because the streaming ecosystem has created the illusion that like, yes, you can get discovered, but in reality, like who's actually breaking through? And as you mentioned, I'm sure there's all kinds of backroom chicanery that's going on behind the scenes. Like no question, if it can be chicanery, the record labels are going to chicanery it. So I've always been intrigued by that idea because you hear so many artists, so many smaller artists that aren't these giant pop stars, like bemoaning streaming in so many ways. And it's such a fascinating dichotomy because in some ways it's like, wow, you're an Joshmo artist and you can get your music heard by anybody across the world so easily. So like that seems cool. But at the same time, I really do think there's a little bit of like an illusionary idea of like how much this is actually like helping artists that aren't already like on some form of like solid ground or like with some form of like already commercial support or social media stardom or whatever it is like right there's so much shit out there i mean and that's like goes back to something that i was saying earlier which is like the way that streaming has affected my own listening habits where it's like there's so much to listen to there's so much to get through i can listen to all of it so easily that like it almost devalues like what i'm listening to in my own mind i mean even you were talking about the way that music just kind of comes on after you listen to something you've chosen to listen to it's like in the background am i paying attention to it am i not like what does that mean like it's a really fascinating change in the way that like I used to sit down at my fucking computer and like intentionally consume music in this way that like I feel like is no longer an imperative on me anymore and that's that's really weird (laughs) to say that's like a weird that's a weird thing one thing I want to ask you about is the way that this kind of has trickled into stan culture or been a part of stan culture. So like the other part of the egalitarian nature of streaming is that fans feel a lot more like ownership and control, especially when it comes to major pop stars about like how well they're going to do or like what their numbers look like. I mean, the fact that Spotify posts those play counts is so interesting to me because of course I love to look at them. I'm fascinated. I'm constantly looking at them all the time. I think it's like one of my favorite little stats to check, but like it really creates this situation where like this kind of toxic stand culture and the way that stands can manipulate the system for their artists has become like much more of a tangible idea. Can you talk a little bit about how stan armies, like when it comes to major pop stars, can like use streaming to like impact or infiltrate like how these pop stars' careers are playing out? Yeah, it's funny because when you think back to the height of the CD era, people knew, I think to some extent that yes, if they are going to wait in line at the record store on Tuesday mornings because the CD used to come out Tuesdays 
back then that yeah. they were going to do that. I remember people would like skip schools to get like the latest album and stuff. There was probably some thought about, okay, this could help the artist, but it didn't seem to be the same way connected where even if I went to go buy a CD, like I didn't really care. Oh yeah, right. this is going to help DMX top the Billboard 100. Exactly. Like I didn't exactly. care about we, we, that. We weren't like that cued into all those stats in that same way. Right. But now people are and- it's funny because those charts is another form of the record label chicanery with this, but I want to, I'll, I'll tackle that in a minute because I think with the stand yeah. culture stuff, we see whether it's the BTS army or others being like, hey, we have to get them to number one this week. We yeah. have to do this. And they'll stream the music. They'll do it as a result. And I do think that obviously all those things help. The armies, they they motivate, they feel like they're behind and the artists, of course, aren't necessarily going to complain. But I think these charts have gotten wise enough to know that if there's fraudulent streams or if there's people that are just like pressing play and letting it you know go on for like a week straight like on repeat which i'm sure that many people do they won't count that so they do weed those things out over time the thing is though and this is where i do think that we've seen the fan piece of this start to shift is where fans realize that the best way to really help an album rise on the charts, especially the Billboard charts, is by buying an actual copy uh, of an album right. or a digital version because these charts heavily de-weight or devalue streaming. I believe right. Billboard's current weight right now is 1,250 streams, on-demand streams on a paid streaming service counts as one album, wow. which sounds like a ridiculous number because even if I love an album, I'm not going to listen to it 1,250 or listen to like one song 1,250 right. times yeah. in order yeah. to do that. Or even if you want to do the math, say it's a 12-track album, I'm not going to listen to this listen to the album 100 times in yeah. order for that to count as an album. But because of the way payments work and all that, they've devalued that. That. So that, in a lot of ways, shifted the behavior for people to still promote whether it is actual copies of the CD. So a few years ago, we saw these bundles come up where artists could then combine the album itself with a t-shirt or merch. But then we started mm. to see artists and their fan bases manipulate those as well. And I think the most egregious one we saw, and to his credit, he worked the system. Travis Scott literally had a full-on e-commerce 24-hour cycle. Right. Here's a new piece of merch. Here's a new piece of merch. Merch for a week straight. And he doubled the sales projections for Astro World. And I think right. in a lot of ways, all the media and earned aspects from that helped him, I think, I think reach the heights that he did that year. Made this here with all the ice on in the booth At the gate outside when they pull up they give me loose Yeah, jump out boys, that's Nike boys hopping our coast This shit way too big when we pull up give me the loot But then Billboard changed that and you can no longer do bundles So now the thing that we're starting to see pushed are vinyl sales And you're starting to see more mm. ca- cassettes and physical media And I think that's a good thing And that even taps back into something you said at the beginning of this conversation about I think there is some aspect of people missing the identity that comes from having right. piece of music that they love but because of how undervalued these things are it is incentivizing fans and their artists to then pick and choose okay if you really like this artist then the best way to do is to go buy this piece of art or thing for them even though you may not listen to that digital album at all you're probably going to just stream the music like everyone else or you may just put the vinyl right. up in Out your room like it's wall. a poster yeah. or something <laughs> right but right. so it really doesn't measure consumption and the thing is if we just went by the closest thing to actual consumption which is measuring streams i know it isn't perfect it has some issues but even if you looked at spotify's charts and then used some rough calculation to assume what it could be for others that's probably the best way to measure how popular a song 
song actually is. So I do think that the Billboard charts with that can have some issues, especially their supply chain issues with vinyl as well. So the labels also are kind of picking and choosing which artists mm. get priority for vinyl, which ones doesn't. Like when Adele's 30 came out, there was this whole noise about how, oh, is there any more vinyl left now? They have supply right, chain right, issues. Right. They, they took all the capacity for Adele. And I think part of it is that it probably would have had this huge, I think, PR hit where when 25 came out, it was the best-selling album that anyone had seen since the 90s or since 2000, right. right? But that was because Adele and several other pop stars at the time didn't have their music on streaming. But now we're in a different world. She couldn't do that. So I think she was able to get up to 800,000. But a majority of that was from vinyl and from CD mm. and other sales. It really wasn't as much from streaming. So you think that like Billboard should be waiting heavier for streaming? A hundred percent. Yeah. Interesting. Because I've always like had such a weird back and forth with that in my own mind because I'm like, I really, really, really hate and like, I don't know if this is just curmudgeonly of me, but I fucking despise when like a superstar artist album comes out and the Hot 100 is like all of their album tracks in the top 10. <laughs> like, it really bugs me because I really used to like count on, I know the Hot 100 has always been rigged and fucked up and like things that, like I'm not, I'm not trying to like go back and be like, you know, make Billboard great again or whatever. Like that's not what I'm trying to say. But like, I like to know what the 10 biggest songs of the week are, like, on some sort of objective metric. And I don't feel like track 10 on Drake album is, like, even if it's, like, getting streamed a lot because people are curious about the album in the first week and then disappears off the chart. Like, I feel like we have weeks that get lost here in the mix where because of the way streaming is clocked, we don't have an accurate Billboard Hot 100. And, like, that, for some reason, like, bugs me a lot. So I'm with you there because I do think the Billboard 100 and 200 different things. So I've been talking specifically about 200, which is about the right. album. So even right, if you right, have, right. you know, 10 tracks or whatever, it's only going to be on there once. The 100 though, I hear you. And I almost wish the two charts had different calculations because right. to your point, and I agree, it isn't that helpful that the 10th track on the Drake album is going to be the 10th song in the country. Right. Yeah. But I wish that whether that chart itself was more heavily weighted based on radio play or whatever it was, like, I know that the chart had its issues in the 90s, so I'm not even saying that that needed to be where it goes back to, but it still felt like it was more of a better capture of where things were. So the 100, I don't even know where to think about that one, because I think that one is just so tough to be able to grasp. Yeah. And, but it's also, you know, like to your point that you mentioned earlier, if the users are still trying to figure out, and by users, I should probably say fans, if fans are still trying to figure out, okay, which of these songs is going to be the one that breaks through. They kind of need to stream them all at some point to see which one right. resonates. I just wish that didn't overpower what should be seen as, okay, this is a ranking of the top 100 exactly. songs in the country. Exactly. Exactly. Like, there's a way in which, like, and then artists and stand bases in return love to tout these stats, but I'm like, Drake having however many top 10 songs that he's had in his career doesn't feel like apples and apples to, like, Michael Jackson, right? Like, who, like, I get, again, chicanery happened, but, like, you look back on Michael Jackson's, I don't know, whatever, 30 top 10 songs, and you're like, yeah, I remember all those songs. Yeah, you know those all the words. All, you remember the music you know, videos. To, yeah. You look back at some of these Drake songs, even some that went to number one, I'm like, I have zero recollection of this song. Like, this song, I don't remember this. I don't know, Drake remembers it. Like, uh, you know <laughs> what I mean? So that, to me, is a little bit of a travesty. Now, this brings me to another question that is a hobby horse and curiosity of mine when it comes to talking about pop stars. So it really does feel like some pop stars 
are like streaming giants and some continue to have success, but feel like less streaming gianty to me. So for instance, and this is a fact that may shock the listeners of this podcast, Beyonce's biggest song from Renaissance, which is Cuff It, has something like 360,000 streams on Spotify, right? Which like, just to be clear, is like significantly less than Antihero, which came out like many, many months after it, is significantly less than Miley Cyrus's new song that just came out after it, but is a top 10 hit and also has less streams. Think about this. Cuff It has less streams than Charlie Puth's Light Switch, okay? How? Talk, how does that, like which stars are big on streaming, which are not, like how does that all work? Like are there specific kinds of stars that are bigger on streaming and not in other ways? Are there still stars that are like working the system, the traditional system and like aren't as reliant on streaming? And like, what is the difference between all of them? I've thought about this piece so much. And I think that when some of these artists who dominated in yesteryear are now releasing music. We're starting to see more of this. I touched on it with Adele because I think she may fall into a similar category. And one of the quick ways to see some of these things, so Spotify recently released this Billions Club and YouTube yeah. has one similarly where you can see what's there. But it's very interesting to see the artists that are there and aren't there. And of course, I know that an artist like Beyonce, there's a time she didn't have her music on before, so there may be less of that nativeness to it. Right. But you're exactly right. Like, I wouldn't even be surprised if a song like SZA Kill Bill, that may even have more streams than Cuff It, if I, I would have to yes. check, or if not, I'd I'm probably sure check. you're right. And it's been out for like six weeks or something like <laughs> right. that. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I do think that there is a shift there. And I do think that with someone like Beyonce, there's probably a few things happening there, right? So her music really wasn't on Spotify fully right. until until maybe it's like 2019, I want to say. Whenever that she famously said, "If I gave two fucks about streaming, I would have put Lemonade up on Spotify." Yep, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I don't even think it was in 2019 that her music was on there. So there could be some behavior adoption there. Maybe a lot of her users could still be on title. I don't know what their subscribers are. You need to check the numbers there. Mm -hmm. So there could be an aspect there, but I do think a lot of it is also generational too. But she is someone who I do think, whether it's vinyl or higher merch things, or even with being able to sell out stadiums, there right. may be less of those people that are streaming music, but the ones that do go hard and they will pay top dollar for everything. On the right. other side of the table, ironically, is someone like a Justin Bieber, who if you look at the top songs on Spotify or the ones at Billions list, he's featured or on some of the most streamed songs ever. And he has right. a lot of them, whether it's Sorry or Love Yourself, all these songs, even Peaches, all these songs over a billion streams. But with his most recent, one of his most recent tours, he had tried to do a stadium tour. He had to downgrade right. to an arena. And I think with someone like Justin, his music's always been available. He's someone that started on YouTube. He's been native to streaming. So you combine that and with having a slightly younger fan base, I would assume, than a Beyonce, an Adele, or a Taylor Swift, that can lend itself to, it can be very easy for anyone, even with a free Spotify account, to stream your music. But is that person going to spend $300 to go drive to the nearest football stadium to see you perform? Different conversation, right? So yeah. I think that he's an example there. I think we've seen others as well, even in hip hop, like there's an artist, NBA Youngboy, his individual yeah. albums may not stream a lot, but he drops albums maybe every six to eight weeks. 
And because of yeah. that, he's one of the most streamed artists in the world. And it may be right. more frequent releases, but he's getting a lot more. I think Bad Bunny as well is someone that has earned a lot from streaming. But I think that's an interesting one because that's a whole nother conversation because a lot of the streams that he gets are from Latin America where they do pay less for Spotify and some of these other services than we do. So even though the stream totals may be more, he may not be getting what may be his mm. fair share or some of that for some of the music he's putting out that's being released so there's so many fascinating nuances with this but this era is definitely separating those artists that may be better with some platforms or better with streaming or better with physical or or stadium tickets i think i think lizzo's another interesting one doesn't stream well and someone who i think has rose up newer in this era but she sells out these stadiums and she headlines these right. festivals and she's an amazing yeah. performer i saw her last year at outside lands incredible yeah. so i think that it's it's fascinating there really is no yeah. hard rule with these things. And I think in speaking to our sort of dissolving of monocultural side adjacent combo to this, it's like, it's so hard. What is a hit? You know, that that's the thing that starts to get so confusing because it's like, Break My Soul got to number one, but has 200 and something thousand Spotify streams. And I was looking at like Miley Cyrus's Spotify page the other day and Midnight Sky, which I think many people viewed as a less successful single than Break My Soul, has like 550 million streams on yep. Spotify. So it's just like this really strange sort of like things are hits in silos. Like I bet Break My Soul probably got played on the radio more, right? Is that essentially right. like what's going on there? And in the nightclubs too, places like right. that, like it just got strong. Yeah. Like I think the fact that Miley's Flowers has been the number one song for a while. I need to check to see if it's still there. But a yeah, number one song on Spotify's yeah. Global 50 list. To reach that yeah. top of that list and stay there is impressive. Yeah. And I believe it. the fact that she did that with that song too which would probably hit a billion streams soon enough as well. It's crazy. Incredible. The whole thing is just like, I feel like we're in such a new world, at least like in what I'm doing here in terms of like trying to assess any of this with like any sort of like comparative rigor. Cause it's just like, it, it just, everything feels siloed in all of these fascinating yeah. ways. And like, I feel like that's the streaming world that we live in. It's like, it's created this thing where it's like, everybody's kind of off in their own little bubble yep. where they're huge but like they're all big in different ways and hard ways that are hard to kind of like place against each other I guess which like is exciting in a lot of ways because I think it allows for like artists to make more interesting music perhaps and also for like lots of different artists to find ways to have careers without necessarily having to play like this one game that everybody used to have to play in terms of like as we were getting it earlier finding one song that everybody's gonna like and their grandma's gonna like and their daughter's gonna like and whatever but like it's just fascinating like, it feels like the wild west in a certain sense or something like it's still so new and we're still figuring out what the hell's going on almost or something like that definitely it's fascinating because i've talked to a few touring agents who this is their world trying to predict these things and i'm like how do you even do your job right now yeah because you used to be able to somewhat try to use data whether it's streams or other things to get an idea of where this person could perform but you're oftentimes taking a shot and they're like yeah sometimes you know we're more likely to err on the low side and and then if things do well, then let's add another show. You know what right. I mean? Like we would rather yeah, do that totally. and leave demand on the table than 
only sell out a place halfway and then need to downgrade and then you may owe money back for the old venue that you couldn't sell out because you reserved yeah. a date that could have went to someone else they're more likely yeah. to err on the side of caution it's so interesting so what do you see as like the future of all of this like where are we going like how are our music consumption habits going to continue to change like what's the future of streaming what's ahead of us in your crystal ball i'm fascinated to see what happens with a company like spotify because i think that it's a company that is clearly built a game-changing amazing product that so many of us use on a regular basis, but it's a company that I think has still struggled to be profitable and find its way. And even things like podcasting and some of these exclusive deals that it's trying to do to actually make money haven't really played out the way that they like. So I do think that eventually a lot of these streaming services will become some other umbrella where it's essentially used to attract customers to sell mm. Amazon Prime subscriptions or <laughs> AirPods or iPhones God. or whatever else that they that have. And, so fucking bleak. Okay. And there's definitely <laughs> some sadness of that, right? Because, I mean, that's maybe just more the, the emotional millennial of me thinking back about, oh, yeah, yeah, you used to be able to like own this thing and have this and have these memories. Yeah. And now it's yeah. more so, okay, I can listen to their music or listen to whoever I want and a click. And if I have to like either go to their concert or go do some other thing to show that. And maybe it's not a bad thing, but I do think that we'll continue to see the impacts. Something that we didn't touch on in this conversation that I think has probably extended the how things have changed with streaming even more so is TikTok. And I think that mm. has just impacted how not just streaming and other things have shifted because I think even though the record labels and streaming services kind of have a back and forth and there may be some agreements on, okay, don't let this go too far, don't let that go too far. I think some of that's even more unpredictable with TikTok, which essentially is is where music discovery is happening now for so many artists, right? right? You're hoping that you get noticed on TikTok and then people will go stream your music, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. now that TikTok, it's no longer in the hyper growth phase. So we're moving past the area where everyone thought that, okay, you just needed to do some like vertical dance that fits in a video or some (laughs) like Jason Derulo tricks in order to get noticed, right? But I think that we're going to see that change the same way that you saw MTV change in a way as well and just the impact that had you look back 30 years ago a lot of artists hated mtv they didn't want to just try to do what madonna did or just do right. some of these campy music videos but they started to make it their own and not everyone needed to do that and they're like okay this is a video a four minute video what can i do with it and they all made it something unique and i think we're mm. going to see tiktok go that same way so i think that combination of how tiktok continues to change beyond just what we may think of a tiktok dance in the past couple of years and i think that includes short form video more broadly whether that's instagram reel or youtube shorts or whatever else comes along that combination plus streaming as well that is going to dictate where things continue to go with music streaming itself and just how people consume and discover artists and how record labels use it and how fans interact with it so it'll be fascinating but that's that's what's going to be ahead for the next few years very interesting very interesting as i said it feels a little bit like a brave new world there's good things, there's bad things, but it definitely feels like everything's changed. And like, I still think we're at the beginning of how that's going to like play out and affect the way that pop stars operate, the way they release music, what their music sounds like, all of that kind of stuff. All right, here's my last double header question. Is there an artist, a pop artist, a pop star that's emerged in the last whatever many years that you feel like is emblematic of being like a streaming superstar? Like it's just somebody that feels like they couldn't have gotten as big as they have gotten without the way that this system has changed the music industry. We talked about him a little bit earlier, but I would say Travis Scott. Yeah. I think so. I think that he was able to 
release music that felt like Spotify core. If right. you know, to, to use a word for it, we saw where now the music's on demand. So many people are listening to it at home, and that's what's driving yeah. the charts. The songs mm-hmm. got a bit slower. The BPMs did. It's a bit of that. What's that chill vibe that you can have right. that is just kind of can play cool in any type of setting? And I think he mastered that. I think he had a really good production with a lot of it. And he was able to use hype and other things to be able to build momentum. Another person I put with that is Doja Cat too. Native mm. to the internet. Just understands yeah. how it works, how everything weaves in. And I think unlike maybe a few other artists that maybe blew up in this social TikTok streaming era, she's just been able to come like hit after hit and just knows mm-hmm. like what works and knows how to get attention with different things she i think her sound and her vibe is definitely i'd say in that spotify core as well yeah is there a specific doja cat song that you'd like to highlight that we could send the show out on just something that you feel like is either emblematic of what we're talking about or that you just like of doja cats i'd say need to know i think that mm. one yeah need I to know need so to know. good what a great song what a great song all right let's go out on need to know Dan Rudsey, thank you so, so much for being on the show. Louie, honored to be here. This was so much fun. Thank you. We'll do it again soon, I hope. Definitely. Yeah, wanna know what it's like. Wish me what it's like. I don't really got no tights. I just wanna fuck all night. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Baby, I need to know. All right, as promised, here is a little snippet from our new Patreon episode, Step Up, Step Down with Russ and I. If you enjoy what you hear here, you can hear the rest of the episode by going to patreon.com slash poppantheon or clicking the link in the show notes. Last up, we have a smashing success that also perhaps we didn't see coming. Miley Cyrus released Flowers and got a record-breaking 101 million Spotify streams in one week, topped more than 40 charts worldwide. It is now her longest reigning number one hit on the Hot 100. And as of recording today, Flowers is the most popular song on the planet. What does this all mean for Miley? What factors are playing into the song's success? Could you get another hit off of this album? What do you think, Louie? This is the biggest surprise of the decade. <laughs> <laughs> this blew my socks off. I don't know if I've talked about this on the show yet, but this completely blew my mind. Like Everything I thought was true is now not true anymore. Like I, I, I'm through the looking glass with flowers, which, by the way, I've grown to like. I, I initially found it kind of underwhelming, but I, I like it now. But... Man, I did not think Miley was going to be able to find herself another me. I thought she'd be famous forever. I thought she'd tour forever. I thought she'd always be like, you know, an artist that was in our lives kind of in like the way she's like a share. And I guess having a random fluke hit single in a quote unquote late in the game kind of way, although she's like 32 years old or whatever, like... It just, I don't know. The hit singles game feels more fickle than ever. feels so hard to do that. It's been so long since she's really had like a big, 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 big hit song. And I just can't believe it. It was the, the out the gateness too. It's not even like the song like built itself into a hit over time. It like exploded out of nowhere. Meanwhile, Midnight Sky was so fucking good. And like no matter how many times she performed it and no matter how, like, and that was only like a few years ago. So it's really interesting to me. I, I'm shocked. I'm trying. 
truly shocked, but also I'm thr- I find it exciting because I do think when I take a step back that like Miley is the artist that would do this because I do think she is a share like figure in the sense that like she's an entertainment mogul. She's like got so many different skill sets that she can apply that to. She's another one that's just born to be a performer, born to be on stage. She'll never not be doing this. Like she is just she this is just who she is on like a cellular level. And if she can spin this into more hits, like if this is the beginning of another like imperial thing for her, that's going to be one of the greatest comebacks since Mariah. Uh, right? I don't know. As you know from being friends with me, I have sent you essay-length text messages about why I think that this song has succeeded. But yeah, I actually... You want to share with the audience? <laughs> it's a lot of factors. I think that she built a lot of goodwill with her last album. Plastic yeah. Hearts, to me, is the best Miley Cyrus album by a landslide. It is a sound that works for her. It feels authentic to her. It works for her voice. There's nothing problematic in the racial politics of it. It's not so soft and boring as some of the tame music that she has put out. And I think that Flowers strikes a chord between all of the things that different pockets of her fans like. I think there's a huge contingent of the minivan majority who are suburban moms who love her from being a television personality. I think that there is a lot of millennials who grew up with her as a Disney figure. I think there's a lot of gays that enjoy her. And I think that her playing with some raucist sounds allows other people who have just seen her as primarily a vocalist at big events like New Year's Eve. I think all of those are coming together in this like perfect mix on this song to allow it to smash. This song invites everyone who has ever liked anything about Miley Cyrus back into the fold. Yeah, I think that that's all, that all sounds right to me. It's still shocking how big it is to me, though. Like, I can get that, like, it was going to be a bigger moment than she's had maybe in her last couple album cycles. But, like, th- it, be- it being this big, I mean, it was just universally chomped up. Like, I mean, it was so, it's fascinating. I- I'm really happy for her. She's so talented. I've been waiting for her to find her groove. Like, I wanted that to happen. So, I'm shocked. And I- I'm so curious if it's about this song or if it's about something bigger than this song is something that I'm... I'm like dead curious to see more about. And I ha- I do have some intel that I can't reveal my sources on that like many That was just a preview. If you enjoyed that and you want to hear the rest of the episode, you can go to patreon.com slash poppantheon or click the link in the show notes to sign up at the icon tier for bonus content, access to our Discord, and so much more.